Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 9th, 2021. I'm John Butthorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today to provide illumination in many ways, but particularly on, on the subject for which he has written extensively uh, for commentary, the uh, Russiagate hoax and the, uh, the the new twists in the investigation that are zooming in on the Clinton campaign and its misbehaviors. Uh, Eli Lake, hi Eli, how are you? Great, thanks for having me. Okay, we'll get to the we'll get to this uh, amazing uh, turn of events in the Durham Special Prosecutor investigation of the Clinton campaign's role in the Steele dossier, and we'll try to make sure uh, as we talk about this uh, later on uh, that we will not get too far in the weeds so that you can follow the conversation because uh, there are so many names and there's it's so twisted and so confusing that we're going to try to separate out the strands and make it clear what what is actually going on. But before we get there, uh, the news of the morning is that uh, Governor Christopher Sununu of New Hampshire has decided not to challenge Democratic incumbent Senator Maggie Hassan in the New Hampshire senatorial campaign of 2022. Hassan only having won the state in 2016 by about a thousand votes over Kelly Ayotte. Um, here's my quick take on this. So uh, this has the Delta blow because, oh my God, this is, you know, Sununu obviously would have walked, waltzed in and so he doesn't want to do it. And now, you know, now uh, this is a blow to Republican hopes of recapturing the Senate. And that strikes me as being uh, uh, whistling past the graveyard for uh, Democrats and people who wanted uh, who want the Democrats to remain in control of the Senate, because uh, Hassan was not a strong candidate to begin with. The environment is unfavorable in that sense. This will be a race between Hassan and a generic Republican, as long as they can get a relatively generic Republican, including maybe Kelly Ayotte, who wasn't the senator whom she ousted in a particularly unfavorable atmosphere in 2016. And um, it just strikes me that uh, Hassan's chances are, are better uh, without Sunu in the race. She might even have decided not to run for re-election had he come into the race. But... Um, that still has to be looked at as at best a toss up and at, and at worst, probably a lean, a lean Republican state for 2022. Noah, do you agree? Yeah, I agree. Uh, the problem is that when these big personalities bow out, then it creates a vacuum. There's already a lot of recruiting efforts to bring Kelly Ayotte back into the, into the fold and they might be successful. Who knows? But the, you know, Sununu's logic was that it's really terrible to be in the Senate and in Washington, and it's really nice being a governor, and that's what I prefer to be, and you can't argue with that. Uh, and that's part of the problem is that they now have to find a generic Republican to ride the environment and not be a crazy person, and there's no guarantee that you can win a primary without being a crazy person. And New Hampshire is kind of a volatile political environment that does tend to reward eccentric personalities. So I wouldn't rule out uh, a 2010-style um, environment in the primary electorate that rewards crazy. I mean, that's that's what's that was their problem in 2010. And it might be their problem in 2022. That's a recruiting issue. The real scary part is that uh, Chris Sununu said that, uh, you know, I haven't he said, quote, I haven't ruled out going to Washington, just not as a senator. 
indicating that he will be one of the 375 Republicans who will run for the White House in 2024, uh, thereby allowing somebody like, for example, Donald Trump to glide into the nomination with all of 19% of the primary vote, who knows? But that was the problem in 2016 and it's shaping up to be a problem in 2024. Um, I mean, maybe it's not that interesting. I mean, what's interesting is uh, uh, Chris Sununu, of course, the son of John Sununu himself, the former governor of New Hampshire and, uh, and the White House chief of staff under uh, George H.W. Bush and the brother of... Uh, another governor, um, like he has reason to not want to go to Washington and be a senator. I mean, I, to be honest, you know, uh, I think there's a reason why uh, a lot of these uh, newly minted candidates for these things uh, aren't uh, people with extensive Washington experience uh, because um, it stinks uh, in Washington. It's, it's a horrible to be a Washington politician now. You know, you're sort of like, uh, the, the 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 pleasures and purposes of being a of, of being a senator or congressman are are much much less than they used to be. We talked about this with Chris Starwalt last week. And if you're a governor of a state where you actually have a lot of power and authority and can um, and can sort of get things done, uh, going into the Senate where you're lucky to vote on three bills a year that uh, that that really please you. I don't even know why you would want to do that. I mean, obviously, if you're like a state senator in Nebraska and you can become the senator from Nebraska, that's a st- step up. And 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 you have the same problems in the in in a state house that you do in, in maybe in the, you know, in the capital, uh, U.S. capital. But 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 your status is much higher and your 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 responsibility is much greater. But I think going from being a governor to being a senator is uh, which which was a very classic pattern. Um, it is not something we're just going to see people, you know, wanting to try to do much anymore. Don't everybody, don't everybody <laughs> I was chime gonna, in at once. I was going to push back a little bit on, on Noah's uh, very um, bleak view of, of uh, the Republican field of candidates, because it, it'll be really different this time around, even if we have a lot of people throwing their hat in the ring, because, because Trump is such a palpable known quantity and so uh, both beloved by it by a small group of, of core supporters and absolutely loathed by by others and what this recent election showed us is that the people who held their nose and voted for him once won't do it a second time if they're independent-minded voters in the suburbs in particular and that republicans can win those folks and so they need to find i mean all the talk has been we need to find a youngkin like you know, candidate in 2024. I don't think it has to be a Yunkin like candidate, but I don't think that a lot of people crowding the field at the beginning is is the worst thing if their message is not Trumpian because it'll show him to be just the same old, same old. And he's been hinting in the last few days that that he's pretty much, you know, planning to run. So it's not like he's a he's not a known quantity like he was the first time around. I think it's pretty fair to say that if Trump runs, um, the only possibility for him losing the nomination is if uh, the entire rest of the party coheres around one person who can contest with him and say, I'm the candidate of the future. You are the candidate of the past. I am the guy who's going to talk about what to do to get us out of the mess that we are in, some of which you helped create. And I don't want to stand around talking about how the 2020 election was was judged unfairly. I want to talk about what we're going to do to derail the coming of socialism or, you know, fix America's foreign policy posture or whatever. 
if that message isn't centralized in a in a specific person who has some kind of kryptonite against Trump, like whom Trump can't humiliate successfully or bring down with nastiness successfully or all of that, then then there might actually be a serious contest. But I think Noah's right that if there are four or five or six people in the race against Trump, there is no there's really no point uh, in that's just something that the best known quantity uh, will uh, will 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 ride out, assuming that the uh, the party the party first past the post gets most of the delegate rules remains in place. Uh, yep. But, you know, looking toward midterms, um, I'm, I'm less convinced that it's about uh, eccentrics this time around. Uh, I really am. I think, you know, there's somehow, because I think there's the, I can't say the fever's breaking on the left exactly, but because there's been a, as vocal outspoken, but, a rejection of sort of extremism and um, crazy ambition on the left. Um, that happens usually in concert with some sort of corresponding um, effect on the other side. And I don't know quite what it is yet, but um, I, I think things like, uh, you know, uh, Yunkin and his demeanor and uh, his, his willingness not to embrace Trump wholeheartedly. Um, I, I think that speaks well, uh, that, that, that bodes well for the, for the possibility of uh, there being a less eccentric uh, GOP going forward. I mean, certainly the mainstream media is worried about this because after, after uh, the last election, there were you know, a whole rash of articles saying like, uh-oh, I think, I think Republicans figured out how to distance themselves from Trump. And and that and that could work for them, um, which I think is a is an indication. Maybe, uh, but you know, splashy personalities count for a lot. For every you know, um, Glenn Youngkin, there's also a Herschel Walker in Georgia, and that's going to be a competitive race because the guy has a tendency to trip over his own shoes. Um, and the NRSC has been courting Doug Ducey in Arizona, and they've been courting Larry Hogan in Maryland, which is probably the only way they win Maryland, and it might be the only way they win Arizona, given the the state. So Sununu, uh, you know, it's a it's an uh, a bad omen, I, I, I guess, for recruiting efforts in in states where Republicans really need a silver bullet to win statewide. I, I totally get it, and I think you know, GOP politics is is sort of half gong show for a while. But it feels different in that um, that was new uh, over the past few years. It's like, oh, what, what is happening here? You know, we're, we're, we're getting these eccentrics and it's starting to actually feel a little old. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I mean, I think Noah makes an interesting point. Like the test case would be Arizona, right? Because Doug Ducey is the governor. Uh, he would be a solid candidate for senator and he would law, law, he would likely beat Mark Kelly, who is running for the second time because he filled a special election seat. Um, has to run in the second time in two years. Uh, but Trump doesn't like Ducey because Ducey didn't do what Trump wanted him to in the course of the stop the steal efforts uh, in uh, November and December. And the Arizona Republican Party is full of psychotics. I mean, it, it is a it is a lunatic freak show. And we don't actually know um I, I, I haven't sort of looked up the rules. Um, Ducey should be able to waltz in, 
but you don't know if that can happen because, uh, you know, uh, Kelly Ward, who basically should be in a straitjacket and living in Arkham Asylum, you know, next to all the Batman villains, is like a major f- figure in Arizona politics. Um, and so it's and a problem so, with our society that the only insane as- asylum you can think of is a fictional one. We don't have any famous insane asylums anymore. And that's part of the problem, I think. Yeah, fair. That's a that, that's a that, except, except, of course, for, you know, I don't know. Congress. Uh, yeah. CPAC. I don't know. Can I can I just say, the, uh, you know, to, National Action Network. Since we are talking about the crazed Republican Party in Arizona, I just have to say that what Gosar did tweeting out a joking video about killing one of his colleagues on the other side of the aisle is totally repulsive. And yeah, we I, need to I explain find that's that Paul. So that's, that's representative Paul, Paul Gosar, yes. a member of the House. Um one of the worst anti-Semite, one of the worst people in America. Um, and yeah, and so he somebody made some weird uh, video in which he shoots yeah. AOC or yes. Rashida Tlaib or something no, like that. No, it was and AOC. He, it's totally yeah. obnoxious. Yeah. And then he posted it like, mm-hmm. oh, isn't this hilarious? Right. Um, Real funny. Real funny. I mean, it's the sort of thing that in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a different in a different world and maybe not in a different world, like he could be expelled from from Congress for that. That is a that that is a genuinely, you know, that is a uh, celebrating or saluting the idea that he that he might uh, kill a colleague. I, you know, there there are extreme cases in which the House expels members It expelled Elsie Hastings as a member and it could expel Paul Gosar as a member. I don't know why whether Pelosi is going to take that up or not, but, but it's, it's well, and McCarthy needs to, it needs to start with the leadership of the Republicans in the house. That needs to be, he needs to be called to account by his own leaders. As oh well yeah. As, yeah. Know, Cause I, Ken, I there's nothing Kevin McCarthy does that is just so responsible and thoughtful. And uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty startling. Eli, you are, you are, you are, uh, you are quiet and contemplative. And I, I know you have, you have, you have views on many of these matters. Well, I keep thinking of, uh, you know, I mean, you guys talk about it all the time. Yuval Levin's great observation that Congress is a platform and this is part of the brand. And um, unfortunately, the Paul Gosar example, again, you know, points to why in if you wanted to sort of, I think, correctly enforce a basic norm of, of not just civility, but not threatening Uh, or making light of killing your colleagues, which seems pretty obvious, then, you know, you are effectively going against the will of the voters in his district. So you're presenting this really difficult choice. Um, There already is a substantial, I I would say the majority of Democrats, it appears, and the people on the January 6th commission really believe that there are members of Congress who were part of with, as I've so far, I've seen zero evidence of this, organizing what they uh, this insurrection or the failed insurrection of the Capitol riot and that that should they should overturn those elections which is you know of course an irony because president or former president trump is questioning the legitimacy of the election saying that joe biden is not a legitimate president and the antidote for this on the other side is to kick people out of congress who have been elected by their constituents. Um, so there has to be some way of maybe getting beyond this lunacy in this moment because it seems that doing things like that, which I think in a normal time would be totally appropriate, would only kind of uh, make the problem worse. I mean, I, I, perhaps right. I'm wrong, but I agree that, yes, it would be nice to enforce the norm, but at I'm what not, cost? 
Yeah, I'm not saying that I think Pelosi should do it or shouldn't. I'm saying that I'm saying that it would be a it would be a subject under discussion. And the fact that it isn't yet, although of course she's in Glasgow doing whatever it is that she's doing in Glasgow, um, the fact they haven't it hasn't sort of yet bubbled up as a as a major issue. It is only it's less than 24 hours. Um, it might, but it might be an indication that some thought is being given to the question of do you just are you just adding fuel to a fire by 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 making a, a you know making a, a, a capital case out of this because in both ways <laughs> because uh, you know the last thing the last thing you need is uh, you know is an empowered Gosar uh, then tweeting out more uh, things about him shooting Pelosi and stuff like that. I mean, I would just point out one thing, and it's not quite comparable, and I forget the name of him, but there was that ridiculous member of Congress who was stripped of his committee by the Republicans, I think, two or three years ago, um, because he was giving support to these crazy kind of white nationalists. Yeah, the, the Iowan. Uh, yeah, yeah, King. right. Steve, Steve, yeah, Steve King, right. Steve yeah. King, right. Um, and, you know, that was, that was a great uh, moment for policing one's own side. Uh, similar to when George W. Bush, you know, uh, supported uh, taking uh, Trent Lott's uh, majority leadership and a whole lot of credit uh, the Republican Party got for that. So there's no incentive structure in some ways for doing these kinds of responsible things on your own side and policing your own side, because that's not going to change the perception of, you know, the elite media and others in Washington that have all this kind of cultural institutional power to say, aha, see, Kevin McCarthy did this responsible thing and maybe the Republicans are changing. And they, they are so, they so need the, the narrative of, of the Republicans being an authoritarian insurrectionist party, which there is some truth to that narrative, but it's not entirely true that I don't think there's anything that McCarthy could do that would, would cause them to try to give that up. Well, McCarthy is now also in the crosshairs because um, uh, I read this morning that there is a move afoot in the Republican caucus to strip the 13 Republicans who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure package uh, to strip them of their committee chairmanships and things like that because they, you know, went against the because they helped pass the bill. Um, and uh, and this is apparently bubbling up and, you know, uh, liberal journalists who are writing about it are sort of gleeful about this. Um, it, it creates an interesting thing because there's there's a whole bunch of people in the Republican sort of thought commentariat who said these people must be made to pay. They should be primary. They should be this. They should be that, which is a little bonkers, to be honest, because uh, if, if your goal is to get the Democrats out of control of the house um you know like going at spending a lot of capital in the next six to eight months going after republicans for casting a problematic vote that was also cast by 19 republicans in the senate it seems like a, a, a ridiculous expenditure of bad energy um nonetheless the question is will will kevin mccarthy somehow quash this or will he go along with it and if he goes along with it, then then you really do have an interesting scenario in 2022 in which the Republicans end up having staging a civil war, disciplinary civil war against, you know, against their own heter, you know, sort of heterogeneous 
uh, membership, whatever is left of its heterogeneous membership, rather than focusing like a laser on the goal of winning the House and winning the Senate. Yeah, it's all part of the same symptom. And why when it's when, you know, big personalities like Sununu, who could have ended the primary before it began, bow out because that neutralizes that impulse to wage, you know, a, a, a ideological purge war on your own side. If Kelly Ayotte got into the race, for example, and there's a lot of efforts to get her into the race. Uh, I don't Again, know why she would former accept. senator, former Republican senator from. Yeah, New she only lost by like a thousand votes or something like that votes, in 2016. Yeah. But she's also said that, you know, she's dumped a lot of crap on Donald Trump and how he's not a role model and how he took us in the wrong direction. And that would be the singular issue around which the primary would revolve. In fact, it's probably going to be the singular issue around the, which statewide primaries for Senate and a lot of other races will revolve on the Republican side. This is this is still the big looming issue of our time. But those on the battles right. are good, right? I mean, sorry to interrupt, but I actually think we should be having those battles, right? I, not if gonna, you lose them. Well, first of all, I, I don't I, I, I agree with that. I don't think it's good because, again, it focuses the party. It, 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 it focuses on the past. And on a supposedly a past wound or a past injury, as opposed to what has Joe Biden done in the last year? What have Joe Biden and the Democrats done in the last year? You don't like that. You know, 40 percent of Americans like what's going on in Washington and with the Democrats. So let's talk about let's leapfrog over that to have a fight over what happened between November 4th and January 20th. Uh, 2020, 2021, like that, that's just, that is an impulse. And what's more, let me just, let me just finish this thought in 2010 and 2012, Democrats played a backdoor role in getting some of the crazies nominated in particular Todd Aiken in Missouri, whom Claire McCaskill's campaign and Claire McCaskill herself ginned up in various ways, boosted uh, the visibility of Todd Aiken in various ways so that he was the guy she could run against and crush. And there is a reason to think that uh, Democrats continuing their focus on Trump, which we're told is bad, right? It's bad because McAuliffe didn't win. But if Democrats continue to focus on Trump in a way that causes Republicans to focus on Trump and make 2022 primaries a referendum on Trump and talk about Trump and all of that, they might be doing the Democrats work for them. By I, ruining I mean that, the Republican effort to make 2022 a referendum on the democratic rule of America since the 2020 elections. That's what Yunkin, so Yunkin didn't make it about Trump. His opponent did. And I, and I take your point, both Noah and John, that if you're in a primary situation, you don't want all the Republicans only fighting about Trump, but there is an opportunity for someone who won't play a Yunkin like candidate, even in a primary to say, let them all squabble about Trump. I'm looking ahead. And that's the candidate that I think scares. The ah, Democrats but the there wasn't side. but there wasn't a primary in Virginia. Right. There right. was no he primary in Virginia. He didn't have to face the larger Republican electorate. It was decided right. basically by in a you know smoke in a smoke filled room. That's how Yunkin got, got the nomination. And that's not going to be the case in, in most right. of these states. So that's where the problem lies. Let me talk to you for a minute about uh, our friends at the Acton Institute and their podcast, Acton Unwind. It's easy to get wound up over what's happening in our country and the world. Refugees, border walls, woke celebs, socialist chic, social engineering, COVID lockdowns, 
That's why it's time for Act and Unwind, a weekly roundtable discussion tackling current events from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Every Monday, join host Eric Cohn and Acton experts, including Dr. Samuel Gregg, Reverend Robert Sirico, Dr. Stephen Barrows, and more in this weekly audio public square where news, politics, religion, and culture meet for an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Acton Unwind will explain the news of the week through the Acton Institute's unique perspective, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we work to promote uh, and shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous, one characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary or search Acton Unwind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine, fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe. Eli Lake. So uh, uh, stunning developments in the uh, in the matter of the, the unresolved matter, not of the 2020 election, but of the 2016 election as... Uh, John Durham, is it John? Yes. John Durham. I should know that since my name is John. John Durham, the special uh, prosecutor appointed by William Barr to look into the question of the uh, unresolved issues relating the Clinton campaign to the 2016 uh, claims of Donald Trump's supposed. Uh, connections to Russia and efforts to suborn our democracy as uh, Trump being a kind of Manchurian Russian candidate. Uh, Barr appointed Durham and uh, and Durham very slowly and methodically has now issued two major indictments. And the big one, the really big one came last week, right? So I'm now going to try to go through this so we can explain who, what, what happened, why it's so important and why the entire journalistic mainstream establishment in the United States now stands in the dock accused of playing a really pernicious and evil role uh, both uh, after the election in an effort to discredit the Trump administration and to uh, carry disinformation of their own wittingly or unwittingly um, to, uh, that, that destroyed many lives and, and, and upended many, many policy discussions. So Let's start with this. Who is Igor Donchenko? Igor Donchenko is a former Brookings Institution researcher who um, you know, sort of makes a living working uh, on projects, uh, in some cases, with private intelligence firms. In this case, uh, for the 2016 election, it was Christopher Steele, the former British spy, uh, whose name is forever attached to the dossier. And Igor Danchenko, uh, first of all, was suspected of maybe being himself a Russian uh, intelligent agent or asset uh, by the FBI, we know, uh, in around 2010 or so. Uh, and in this period, he was working for someone named Fiona Hill, who uh, later served the Trump administration. She had been uh, the national intelligence officer um, for uh, the Obama administration. And she is somebody who is one of the kind of best experts on the Kremlin in the West. 
The reason that's important is because her name has surfaced recently because she is the person who in 2010 introduced Danchenko to Christopher Steele. So it turns out that Danchenko is in the context of the Steele dossier is sometimes called the primary subsource. But he was the main source of information and he was the person who gathered the intelligence that ended up in this document. Okay, now, now, what yeah. happened last week to Igor Danchenko? He was indicted on five counts of lying to the FBI and his lies were uh, involving two things. One was he uh, did not acknowledge his close working relationship with a longtime Democratic operative named Charles Dolan. And we should bracket that because I want to get to Dolan in a minute, um, who fed him at the very least, we know for certain information uh, that was in the Steele dossier about the circumstances under which Paul Manafort quit or was fired, but um, was also likely a source for some of the more alarming uh, allegations against Donald Trump, including uh, the infamous uh, Golden Showers uh, allegation uh, in the Moscow Ritz-Carlton. And okay, so let's so let's yeah. let's let's try to disentangle this. Danchenko is indicted uh, for uh, lying to the FBI uh, and lying, essentially lying to the Durham investigation, uh, seeking right. information on the provenance of the Steele dossier. The Steele dossier being the document that was circulated around Washington in September and October of 2016, alleging that the KGB had compromise on Donald Trump uh, dating back at least well, to 20... What, the right? key allegation for the purposes of the Trump years was that there was an active and well-developed conspiracy between Russia and the Trump campaign to interfere in the 2016 election. Right. So, um, and that, 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 that relationship was due to Trump's behavior that the KGB was on to and that therefore they had him compromised and could use him at will. According to what now, now, now let's go to uh, let's go to uh, Charles Dolan. Right. So Charles Dolan, a longtime Democratic operative, it turns out plays a like triple or quadruple role in the creation, production, dissemination and uh, information contained within the Steele dossier. So to start, Donchenko is also working with Charles Dolan on uh, putting together a conference in Moscow in the fall of 2016. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that Charles Dolan appears to be a source for a lot of these allegations. And Charles Dolan is in a position to know because for eight years between 2006 and 2014, Charles Dolan worked for Ketchum, which is a PR firm based in uh, Washington, I think in New York, that at the time represented the Russian Federation and Gazprom, their largest energy company. And the best, the most delicious irony in all of this, as uh, Chuck Ross of the, of the uh, Washington Free Beacon has reported last week, is that Charles Dolan 
is an unregistered foreign agent, which is to say that he is working for Ketchum. He is submitting on FARA forms for, or Ketchum submitted expenses for Mr. Dolan in uh, uh, north of 100,000. FARA is the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Exactly, Foreign Agents Registration Act. paid by a foreign government, you must register as a foreign agent with the federal government. And the the, uh, fact that certain officials did not register with Farah or under Farah. Right. Gave Robert Mueller what? Well, Robert Mueller used this as a weapon to charge people that he initially believed were going to tell him about this active conspiracy that was in the Steele dossier with violating this law, which has significant penalties. Among them, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn for a contract with Turkey, um, Rick Gates, the deputy of Paul Manafort. Um, in, and so these, the, the thing about- People and will remember, let me just interrupt. People yeah. remember that when Manafort was first indicted, his lawyers said, this will never stand because he's being indicted on the basis that he violated Farah. And in the 60 years that Farah has existed, there have been maybe- four prosecutions something like that six, in the course yeah. what six pro- in the course of 60 years for violating this which could be the violation of which could would would under almost all circumstances be viewed as at, at the very most a misdemeanor you know if, even even if the law says it's a felony it's like something you didn't file the paperwork right in some way so that the fact that this was the central the initially the central charge was something that Manafort's own lawyers viewed with horrified skepticism because there was no precedent for, you know, basically bringing the entire force of the federal government down on a guy for not for for not filing the paperwork that said that he was a foreign agent of Ukraine. In this case, in Manafort's case of Ukraine, right? And in, in, in his in his memoir, uh, Andrew Weissman, who is Mueller's deputy states that when he first gets on the special prosecutor's team, he goes to the FARA office at the Justice Department and discovers that there is no one there who is charged with actually investigating <laughs> violations of this. And he's like, hot dog. I mean, we can, we can really run with this thing because the practice had been for you know generations in Washington that violations of the foreign agents law was not something that was going to be dealt with with the criminal arm of the fbi it was a paperwork violation you had to you know maybe pay a fine but that was about it right so So the irony in the dolan case then is that he is guilty of exactly the same thing uh based on uh based on chuck ross's investigation he is guilty of exactly the same thing for which Manafort. It's not the only thing Manafort did, right? Yes, Manafort was, a, right. was accused of embezzlement or convicted tax, of embezzlement tax evasion and, like and other things. Yeah. And embezzlement. So, but in this case, he was convicted of Farah, and so, and Michael Flynn. Farah was used against Michael Flynn to control Michael Flynn, and there is uh, there is uh, Charles Dolan, um, who seems to be a kind of behind the scenes figure of immense importance in this entire matter. And he himself is a violator of Farah, and nobody. Not just a violator. All of the other Mueller indictments were for violations of Farah that did not involve Russia. He's a Russian unregistered foreign <laughs> agent, which makes it even better. Right. Um, and you know, a person who is some kind of you could say in the Clinton inner circle. He was the chairman of Bill Clinton's uh, Massachusetts 
campaigns in the 90s and his two elections. He was appointed to the State Department's Advisory Board on Public Diplomacy by Bill Clinton and then renominated, I think, under Obama. He was somebody who was involved in the Clinton campaign. And here he was providing rumors that he'd heard uh, in his dealings in Russia to Danchenko, who then gives it to Christopher Steele. And this then finds its way into the Steele dossier and has the FBI and the U.S. media after Trump is elected chasing its tail for two and a half years. So, again, to separate these strands, uh, Charles Dolan is a Democratic operative, uh, and he is connected in some way or other, probably, to the Clinton campaign. Though we're well, not- the, the indictment says that he, he was a volunteer. He appeared on calls okay. with supporters. Right. He was somebody who was involved in the campaign. Right. So the Clinton campaign or some or operatives of the Clinton campaign engage this firm, Fusion GPS, to hire Christopher Steele to investigate these ideas that Trump is uh, and the Trump campaign uh, are, are in cahoots with Russia. And it's and, I, was, I just point out, yeah. this is part of a pattern with everybody involved in the Steele dossier and the construction of this narrative, just to go through a couple other data points. Uh, so now we have Charles Dolan, unregistered foreign agent for the Russian Federation. Christopher Steele has a separate contract to work for Oleg Deripaska, who is one of the major oligarchs who uh, is mentioned in the you know, Mueller report, as well as the Senate Foreign uh, Intelligence Committee's reporting as somebody who, you know, played a role behind the scenes in uh, the interference. He is working for Deripaska to try to uh, find money that Paul Manafort owes Deripaska. So he's trying to recover that money. He is working for Deripaska. Incidentally, this information never appears in the Steele dossier, which is extremely suspicious. Now let's go to Fusion GPS. Fusion GPS's longtime client was Natalia Veselnaskaya. That's the Russian lawyer who had a 15-minute meeting with Don Jr. and Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort at Trump Tower in 2016 to offer dirt that was produced by, you got it, Fusion GPS on Hillary. So all of these people who are behind the narrative about Trump's dalliances and collusion and conspiracy and the leverage the Kremlin has over Trump are themselves in business with various Russian figures. Savor that irony, everybody. Okay, that is incredible. That's it really does look at times like it was projection on the part of the Hillary campaign uh, when they accused uh, their opponent of being engaged in a conspiracy with Russia. Now, I wrote uh, almost a year ago for commentary, a piece called Framed and Guilty, which got into the various ways in which Donald Trump does have some serious blame for you know, what he was doing and saying with regards to Russia, but none of it was ever coming close to this conspiracy, which we were told five years ago, or almost five years ago, uh, was something that would uh, lead to impeachment and worse uh, for the president. So let's just let's just close the circle on the triple dealing. So um, uh, Dolan has a business relationship, prior business relationship and a relationship with Igor Donchenko, just indicted for lying to the FBI. Dolan tells 
Danchenko stuff about Trump, uh, rumors about Trump, including about the P tape. Steel, I should say, Durham is cagey in this regard. What he okay. says is that Dolan was in the hotel and was given a tour of the room where Trump stayed and right. was asked about this. The one thing we know that Dolan was the source of, which he made up, he, he deceived Danchenko, was uh, an item that said that Manafort was uh, pushed out by Corey Lewandowski in 2016. And he claimed to Danchenko that he had this from this great Republican insider, when in fact he had gotten it from reading the newspaper. Okay, so everyone's so lying case, to so, everyone. So the, the, the point here is that, uh, is that Dolan, it turns out, is a source for stuff in the dossier yes. that Steele effectively claimed was gotten from senior official. I mean, it, you know, it, in the language of the dot, the un, whatever, the collation of the, was somehow coming from the highest levels of intelligence. Yes. And that in fact... It came from this guy, Dolan, who was retailing a rumor to Danchenko, who then told it to Steele, who then put it in the report. Right. In some cases, period. Right. Period. In some cases, the indictment, Danchenko just makes stuff up. For example, the confirming report about the ongoing and active conspiracy came from someone named Sergey Millian. This is a minor real estate developer in the United States who's a, a born in Russia, somebody who uh, form, created something called the um, Russian American or US Russian Chamber of Commerce, which is kind of a weird organization. What Donchenko claims is that Millian confirmed to him this act of conspiracy. In fact, he never spoke to Millian. He tried to get in touch with him through LinkedIn and couldn't get him on the phone, but he decided to sort of make that up and put it in the steel dossier and apparently nobody caught it or checked it. Uh, so in some cases, Donchenko is just making up these allegations, but just to, as I'm sure uh, Noah and Abe uh, and you all would remember, Sergey Millian was like an active investigation for the media for like the first year and a half of the Trump administration. People believed that the walls were closing in. Um, so that's like, you know, a, a, a total made up thing that, uh, I guess, you know, it was it was disinformation that then people took extremely seriously for the first year or so of the Trump administration. Can I just jump in and yeah. to that point that the media collaboration on this story is as yet led to zero retractions of all of this, you know, now that this new information is out. And in fact, Eric Wemple, the Washington Post has right. been going around asking, yeah, so now what? What are you guys going to do about all these stories? And the, the amount of corporate media uh, uh, bureaucratic responsiveness is is uh, kind of uh, astonishing. They're all like, oh, we're looking into it. Yeah, we're, we're going to look into it. We're going to look into it. I will be shocked if we have a single retraction of any of these stories, which is exactly what they should do if they find that the sources were were corrupted or, or untruthful. Look, I like Ben Smith of the New York Times. He's an old friend of mine. He's an old friend of Eli's. Media reporter for the New York Times does a great job. Was the editor of BuzzFeed in 2017 when BuzzFeed published the dossier? This is now the biggest story in media. I don't know what's going to happen at the Times because I don't know how Ben writes about this. And ordinarily, he would jump on this, but he, of course, is a figure in the story himself. And the interesting thing about the media coverage of the Steele dossier is that 
uh, BuzzFeed across the Rubicon. I said this at the time, and it's even truer now, as you can see. That dossier was being retailed all over Washington in August, September, and October of 2016. And nobody in mainstream media would touch it because they looked at it and said, there is nothing corroboratable here. I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't see any proof of anything. And as the Obama people themselves, not the Clinton campaign people, but as the Obama people themselves, from what we can tell, said when it was brought to them, I don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. Like, if we start playing around in this, we're going to help get Trump elected because we're, we're, we're now just sort of like throwing crap at the wall to see what sticks against him. And we better keep our distance. And the media kept their distance. All the mainstream media kept their distance until January of 2017 when BuzzFeed published the dossier. And then suddenly uh, all the hesitancy that they had about the dossier went out the window and it became the root source for things. And this is the most important element of Eli's reporting, I think. That dossier became this was all in this incredibly circular way, became the evidence that was used to allow for the uh, FISA court to investigate uh, well, that happened US... before. That happened before BuzzFeed published it. Okay, fair enough. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, so, but, 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 uh, but the renewal of the FISA warrant in the case of Carter Page, if I remember correctly, was there was this kind of weird thing where where the renewal to to get another 90 days of it or whatever cited news stories that were themselves sourced to the the dossier. Do am yes. I remembering that, this correctly? That, that, that's that's correct. There was okay. There were two pieces during the campaign. One was uh, Michael Isakoff wrote a piece uh, that said that the, which was true, that the FBI was investigating a trip that Carter Page had taken to Moscow. He didn't reference the dossier or, uh, you know, any of this stuff, but it, it was clearly, he did his own reporting after he got this briefing. And he, and, and Isakoff has talked about that. And by the way, Isakoff is one of the few members of the media who has had um, a kind of degree of sort of looking at this and saying, wait a second, this dossier was bunk. And I, I, he, he's a little bit better than uh, some, his sometime collaborator, David Korn, who right before the election for Mother Jones, writes a piece about this widely respected former British, and you know, he doesn't say British, a former Western intelligence official who has done all of this uh, snooping and come up with all these disturbing things about um, Donald Trump, uh, somewhat also bolstered by a letter from then Senate, I think Majority Leader Harry Reid, who wrote an, a letter to, to James Comey that he made public saying, I, you know, and I know that there are all these things that, you know, you haven't mentioned to the public about Donald Trump. Uh, it, it seems pretty obvious that Harry Reid was getting some information about from this dossier as well. And I would just say on your point about BuzzFeed and everything like that, the difference was, is that when it was just presented to journalists as we have this investigator who looked at this stuff, you can't use his name, you can't attributed to this thing, but here are some tips that you should look into this versus we know that the FBI is now investigating this. And once the media learns the FBI has an active investigation, then it's off to the races because it's no longer, we have, we, the, you, the media doesn't have to prove or show that these allegations are true. It just has to say that the FBI thinks them seriously enough to investigate. Right. And that is what I believe that this whole thing that Durham is doing is gonna come down to which is the, the, the Clinton campaign in 2016 basically tried to gin up 
investigations or the appearance of investigations to then retell to the press to then say that Trump himself was being investigated because of course, Hillary was being investigated for her private email server. And it was the reopening of that investigation less than two weeks before voting day that uh, you know probably cost her the election. Uh, so the idea was that they had several approaches, not just through the Steele dossier, which the FBI took seriously, particularly the leadership of the FBI took it seriously, not just in the surveillance warrant for Carter Page, but also James Comey wanted to include this information in the intelligence community assessment on the Russian interference. But there was also Michael Sussman, who is a lawyer for Perkins Coey, who worked for the Clinton administration, Clinton campaign in this period, who generated a phony story about something called Alpha Bank, which is a Russian bank and it's mysterious communications with Trump uh, organization servers. There was also Sidney Blumenthal and Cody Shearer who had their own private investigation who were trying to interest people at the State Department and other US government agencies in their research that showed uh, various Trump-Russia conspiracies. All of this was designed to, maybe if you could get a journalist to, you know, write it themselves, but more importantly, if you could just get journalists to write that the FBI was investigating this serious thing, then that was the cloud that they wanted to hang over Trump. And it was unsuccessful really during the campaign, but boy, did it work after Trump was elected. And that's, that's how we kind of got where we ended up, which is that they wanted to have the, they wanted to see, see, the, see the FBI launch investigations and then have those investigations be reported by the media. And once you get that in our current media environment, that's really all you need. And you can print the dossier and you can say, well, we don't know if it's true, but the FBI is looking into it. And that's what ended up happening. So, um, so this, this is a very uh, twisted, complicated issue that involves the way things are framed uh, in the mainstream media. So for two years, I mean, name gallery, you know, gallery of villains, Jason Leopold of Buzzfeed, uh, Natasha Bertrand of the Atlantic, uh, people at McClatchy, um, various places where what the way it would be framed is investigators are looking into blah, and there would be this allegation without evidence or without proof uh, and without any subs, uh, you know, without any substantiation, particularly in relation to Sergei Milian, whom you mentioned earlier. Um, and that the only thing that could be said is the so-and-so is looking into this, but of course, anybody can look into anything. The Mueller investigation could be said to have been looking into anything. Right. And then when the Mueller investigations were, Hey, go ahead. Well, but I just want to contrast this. I mean, Eli's 100% right that, you know, once they once the media can announce an investigation, they can run with it. Um, but I want to contrast it with the way that the media treated the, the revelation that that there's an FBI investigation into Hunter Biden. Uh, yes, that, they, they, they didn't run with that, did they? No, run with it, right. run with it. They suppress there was That's, active. I mean, it's not. The media, well, there are two different issues here, right? Social media companies suppressed the articles that were being published, particularly by the New York Post, 
about the Hunter Biden and and with the line being promulgated that the Hunter Biden story itself was an act of Russian disinformation attend, you know, designed to get uh, to get Donald Trump uh, elected. Um, That was actually sort of like said as though there was any evidence that that was the case. But it was by this point, it was okay to say anything. uh, And yeah. So uh, so we, we have a sort of rogues gallery history here of media misbehavior in relation to all of this, that the Durham, it, it appears the Durham investigation, which is not designed to go after that, is nonetheless painfully and slowly exposing to the extent that even Eric Wemple in the Washington Post, though we have a problem with the New York Times, since its own reporter is complicit in the development of this entire narrative, um, that that they're not really going to be able to avoid. Barry Meyer, a longtime uh, investigative journalist at the New York Times, wrote a book about private intelligence firms and the role that they have increasingly played in American life called Spooked. Barry Meyer has a piece in New York Magazine this week about the disaster of the Steele dossier and the, and the, and the nature of Durham's exposure of this weird world uh, in which opposition research has now become conflated with intelligence and and uh, and really dirty tricks going on in particular at Fusion GPS. Again, playing my own Zelig role, I not only is Ben Smith a friend of mine, but Glenn Simpson, who runs uh, who runs Fusion GPS, is is, a, is an old friend of mine and a and a one time colleague. Um, well, to, uh, to use a very commentary phrase. I would consider Glenn Simpson at this point to be an ex friend of mine. Uh. <laughs> right. I mean, I've never had, a, I haven't had any division from, 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 from Glenn. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, th- this is a world, this is a classic sort of internal Washington and media world. Glenn worked at the, it, it worked with me at Insight. Then he went to the wall street journal. He's sort of like, He's all mixed up, but then he ran a for-profit intelligence advisory firm that then got itself with the whole idea, I think, of Fusion GPS was they would develop information for the Clinton campaign that Glenn, with his sources in media, could then retail to the media without the Clinton administration, without the Clinton campaign's fingerprints on it. That was the whole point of Fusion GPS's role in this entire business was to disseminate information to destroy Trump without the Clinton administration's fingerprints on it. I mean, the irony is that before bringing on Christopher Steele, the Fusion GPS opposition research was largely correct. They did a lot of the work on Trump University. They did a lot of work on um, how Trump was using illegal aliens in his various properties and so forth all of which was supported by public documents. And, you know, for a very brief period, right after I graduated from college in 1994, I worked on opposition research. It's effective when it's true. The people, you know, you you get paid more because you get true information. The unusual step was hiring a former uh, spy to basically tell you this stuff that was uncheckable, which is inside stuff from the Kremlin. And what we've learned from the Durham indictments is that um, it was uncheckable because a lot of it was made up, a lot of it was rumor, and a bit of it came from a Democratic operative who used to, who was an unregistered foreign agent for Russia. Um, so um, in that respect, uh, that, that sort of 
that that was a new part of it. But I, I also think that there's another element to this, just taking a step back, uh, which is that we, uh, you know, those of us on the center right have really noticed in the context of race and gender, what might be a sort of style of discourse where if you dissent even a little bit from what is this new uh, essential truth, then, then you're, you're, you're not just a crank or a contrarian, uh, you're yourself kind of an agent of disinformation. You're somebody who uh, is out to um, you know, undermine the faith in these vital institutions and things like that. Um, and that there are serious social penalties for uh, that kind of dissent. Well, that style of discourse existed around Trump and Russia before it became so prevalent after Mueller and you know, sort of during the Trump years on race and gender. It's the same kind of thing, which is that it wasn't just that there was, the media was picking up on it because the FBI was looking into it and became this kind of circular thing. It was also that if anybody said, wait a second, can we take a step back here? Are we sure this happened? Then you yourself were like enabling the Russian takeover of the US government. And I mean, I can't help but notice, but it's similar to the rhetoric that we heard from Black Lives Matter in 2020, that if you questioned defund the police, then you were on the side of uh, George Floyd's killer. And that is another part of it as well. And I don't know if to blame social media or if that was just sort of the moment that we're in in this country, but that was a real problem as well. Okay, uh, Eli, that's a, a fantastic sum, summation. And, um, you know, you've had a lot of sleepless nights dealing with this sort of thing. And I want to talk to you guys about sleepless nights and the coming holidays, because, you know, if you could give anybody a present, uh, I think the present to be giving them would be the gift of a better night's sleep. And that's why I want to talk to you. And Noah wants to talk to you about Bowen Branch, uh, the maker of pure organic cotton sheets that make a truly special gift um, with the holiday uh, coming. So uh, Noah, you have Bowen Branch sheets. What is your experience with them? That's right. I got a set of these sheets over the weekend. I had just made my bed and I ripped off the sheets right off my freshly made bed to put my bowl and branch sheets on them. They are as soft and luxurious as everybody tells you they are. I got the color pewter and most of my house is in color pewter. It's this lovely, rich gray and I highly recommend it. But the best part about them, I got king size sheets and they actually fit on a king size mattress. So many of my sheets don't fit on a king size mattress. You wake up in the morning and all of a sudden the fitted sheet has ejected itself and you're on a raw mattress and it's somehow <laughs> violating. Say goodbye to that. No more exposed mattresses. The sheets actually fit. I can't recommend fitted sheets highly enough. And the rest of them are pretty good too. So look, Signature Hem Sheets are their all-time bestseller. They're beloved for so many reasons, like how they get softer with every single wash, buttery soft, lightweight, made with 100% organic cotton weave that feels incredible in all seasons. Comes in a wide range of colors from pewter to whatever other color you might want and all sizes from twin up to California King. Completely toxin free, fair trade certified. Treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard in bedding from and Branch. Their gifts come wrapped and ready in the special holiday packaging. Order by December 19th for guaranteed delivery by Christmas. Get up to 20% off your order from today to the 17th of November with promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code commentary. See site for details. 
exclusions may apply. Um, so let's go back to bashing the media a little bit because it's just you, you can't you, you, you can't help yourself. I mean, one of the reasons that it was so hard to deal with the with with the uh, utter um, uh, the fact that uh, this entire narrative about uh, Trump being an agent of, uh, of Russia uh, was so hard to deal with uh, was that um, if you assume just sort of elementary good faith on the part of professionals working in a, in a you know, in, a, in an industry that, you know, in my case, I've worked on, worked in for, you know, almost 40 years, and I know that people are liberals and I know they're bad. And I know there have been bad journalists forever. Like I started at Time Magazine in 1982. One of the first things I had to do was fact check a report on the Sabra and Shatila massacres by the legendary British uh, journalist uh, Robert Fisk. And um, every single detail uh, in the story was in the article that he wrote uh, for the Times of London was made up. Uh, that was what our correspondent on the scene said he was like i don't know where that would have been and what they would there is no intersection like that in the sabra camp where he says there was a israeli doing x y and z um and uh, and so like from the outset of my career i know that there are bad apples and so you do that but I, I i am struck by the fact that there was an entire network of reporters uh uh, supported by liberal media institutions from cnn to msnbc to everything else um doing this crossover from on the one hand reporting on things to on the other hand essentially expostulating about them or delivering opinions on them who simply presumed that Mueller was going to prove that Trump and 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 his campaign colluded with Russia and when the Mueller report finally came out after two and a half years and could find no such connection all they could find in the second half of the report were complicated prevarications or moments at which it appeared that people hadn't told them the entire truth about, you know, in questions uh, attempting to create a perjury trap um, that that nobody then took a step back and said, oh, my God, I got this wrong. There were people who were skeptical of it from the beginning, Eli being one, Byron York being another, Molly Hemingway being a third, others, some of them very ideologically inclined themselves to try to support Trump against liberal media. But uh, the the experience, where was the experience of people going, oh, my God, I've just spent two years peddling garbage that was being poured into my ear by people that I can't trust who didn't know it, including like and most elementary uh, Adam Schiff. There's a great Eli has a great review of Adam Schiff's book um, in, uh, in 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 commentary, this uh, self-aggrandizing memoir that doesn't deal with the fact that uh, almost everything he said in relation to Trump for two years on MSNBC and other places was a lie. There's been no revisiting. There's been nothing. Do you think, does anybody think, as Christine pointed out, that there will be some kind of an internal moral reckoning with the fact that lives were destroyed, Carter Page's life was partially destroyed, George Papadopoulos' life was partially destroyed, other people who maybe sleaze bags and, you know, I don't like Michael Flynn and I think he's disgusting and I don't like Paul Manafort and I think he's disgusting. and I don't know anything about Rick Gates, but um, like you, you can't do this. Like this is America. You're not supposed to do this to people. Uh, is there going to be any kind of a reckoning or just we're, we're just memory holding this? No, no, but not only will there, will there not be a reckoning, I think a, a good chunk of the media will go forward 
remaining certain that there was some conspiracy between the Kremlin and Trump that they that they that just was still never quite gotten to. It's an article of faith. Yeah, I think the means and ends here is the is the challenge with the mainstream media right now, right? If it suits a narrative end, the means for getting there are really not their business once they've printed a story, if it's on their side of the aisle, of course. Now it's completely reversed if you're if you're investigating something on the Republican side. But I I, I mean I'm kind of shocked. I, I really do hope to see. Uh, I mean, if not full retractions, at least revisiting those stories saying, okay, now we have all this new information, we have these new indictments, let's let's look into it. But what is the incentive for them to do that right now? There's very little incentive, and it's certainly not going to sell newspapers or sell digital print subscriptions to the New York Times to be to be revisiting their errors during the Trump. Well, we're we're seeing a little bit of it. I mean, there was a Washington Post news story which included the line that said, calling into question even this newspaper's coverage of the dossier. There's, of course, the Eric Wemple columns. The New York Times, uh, a few months back, when Barry Meyer's book came out, published in a lengthy excerpt from it in the New York Times Magazine. Uh, you know, I write for Bloomberg, and I certainly have uh, been writing about this. And we're seeing, again, a, a kind of, we're in the dawn of a kind of new media environment where prominent writers on the left, like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, have been unrelenting on this point. And I imagine that there are some people in their ideological sphere that, you know, can't help but, you know, begin to maybe reflect. I'm not predicting a wholesale mea culpa on MSNBC or CNN. I don't think that's going to happen. But th- there are some signs that it's going to be hard to, to, to do. Now, on the other side of this, George Stephanopoulos in his new documentary series just had an hour with Christopher Steele, who- Who thinks, stood by his work, who stood no, by his dossier. Can I say it's worse than standing by his work because when he was asked about specific allegations like the P-tape, he says, I think it's 85% likely, or he gave this percentage. So I'm much like, science. What are you doing? <laughs> so much math. If only someone had looked into this for three years, um, you know, and found some, if we, how are we going to adjudicate this? There was a tweet from ABC News which says some call him a fraud, others call him a hero. We get like, I, like really, who are the okay, people well, calling him a hero? <laughs> so Noah, let me let me let me ask you this in relation to it. Like, um, this was a failed uh, intelligence operation against Trump. Uh, I mean, you can say that they were distracted and Mueller was a distraction. And so, you know, Trump couldn't really focus on doing other stuff because he was so obsessed with, uh, you know, dealing with Mueller and all that. But they ran the campaign. Uh, He did. He did get elected. Uh, They, you know, ginned up the Mueller investigation. It didn't go anywhere. He was impeached over something that had no relation to this whatsoever. And he was impeached over Ukraine and, his, and, and behavior toward Ukraine in 2019 after, after the Mueller investigation was concluded. That was the first impeachment, the second impeachment, of course, relating to, to January 6th. This was, a, this was a disaster. This focus on Russia and Trump was a disaster, I think, in large measure, because it was not explicit. Trump's behavior, with the exception of him saying nice things about Putin, was not reflected in Trump policy. Trump policy was, as, as we've said from the outset, hawkish toward Russia. The policy was hawkish. The language was bizarrely friendly, but the policy was hawkish. 
if they could have proved that the Trump administration's policy toward Russia was uncustomarily and oddly friendly, thus suggesting that Russia got something quid pro quo in exchange for its supposed interference in the 2016 election, there might have been some substantiation to the idea that Trump was a Russian agent of influence. But there was none. Why, why cling to the narrative? Give it up. Drop it. Throw it away. Because if you want to stop him in 2024, this is not the path to continue to go down. Well, it that's was the story you're outlining. They are throwing it away by not performing these retrospectives. They are moving on. But if they were to engage in some sort of a, a reflection on their own conduct, then they would be adding fuel to the fire. Why would they want to do that? They are moving on by pretending none of this is happening. Okay, fair enough. Well, fair I, enough. I mean, I think there's one thing that needs to, that I think that there will be a public report. I mean, Andy McCarthy has written this and I think he's correct. There will be a public report from Durham. And that public report, I think, will be very, will be damning to the media. It will be damning to the Clinton campaign. It will be damning to Perkins Coe, the law firm, Fusion GPS, Christopher Steele. It won't be good at all. We're starting to see that from these indictments. And that in some way can be a touchstone for the historical record, even if it, it will be too much at this in this moment for the people who are kind of at the heights of the media now to read it and internalize its lessons. Um, there probably will not be, uh, as many Trump fans think, you know, high level indictments. You know, William Barr, the former attorney general, said that uh, neither Biden or Hillary were uh, subjects in this investigation or Obama. Uh, so you're not going to see um, the kind of thing that Trump has said, you know, would be coming. And a lot of people in Magaland are coming in that you're not going to see the law and the Justice Department turned against um, the Democratic Party in the way that so many Democrats had hoped that the Justice Department and the law would be turned against the Trump administration. None of those things are going to happen. What you will, though, get is a kind of correction of the record. And just one other kind of point that's related to this, what, when I, I, I made, I, I don't know if it was the mistake, I, I, I listened to Peter Strzok on the Lawfare podcast uh, over the weekend, uh, talking about all of this. And the line- Peter Strzok is an FBI agent who was materially involved in the Mueller investigation. And, well, and, well, and also the initial FBI crossfire initial, hurricane, or, right, and then he right. was taken- um, and right. Ben, oh, yeah, that's right. So in right. 2016, he was one of the FBI agents authorized to investigate the Trump administration's potential connections to Russia right. and the crossfire hurricane. And right. Um, and they say that, um, you know, the Mueller, there's no mention of the Steele dossier in the Mueller report. So what are we talking about? That's an indictment of the Mueller team. The fact of the matter is, is that Mueller has a lot of detail of things that he didn't charge. For example, uh, there was an effort by Republicans in 2016 to try to find the deleted emails on Hillary's private server in an effort to show that there was classified information and then to obviously get that in front of the FBI so they could say we're, there's an investigation into Hillary's misuse of classified information. It's under the Espionage Act. In 2016, if you listen to people like Mark Levin's radio show, he would constantly bring up this idea of the Espionage Act and this and that and the other. Well, this is exactly, 
exactly what the Clinton people were doing. They were trying to manufacture the cloud of this investigation. And the fact that the Mueller team didn't mention any of that, in my view, is evidence that, the, that Mueller himself and his deputies chose highly partisan attorneys for this project, that they were going to produce a document that was as favorable to the Democrats as possible. Uh, and even with that, with those constraints, they, they could not manufacture a charge of collusion or conspiracy or get any of these initial charges to stick. So they point to the uh, indictments on the Foreign Agents Registration Act and things like that. But in fact, the fact that Mueller ignored all of this is why there needed to be this guy, John Durham, to investigate it. And I would say that of all the people, all the attorneys in the Justice Department to do it, Durham is really a very good choice. Not I mean, He's known for um, two things. One is he investigated the CIA uh, after the allegations of torture in the black sites. Uh, and he came away and he didn't prosecute any CIA officers in that. But before that, he was the bulldog that the Justice Department brought in to discipline the FBI agents, particularly in Boston and New England that were working with Whitey Bulger uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and that kind of- what, Whitey Bulger was the, bro, was the Boston crime boss who was simultaneously- For the, for the Winter Hill Gang. Yes. Yeah, who was simultaneously an FBI informant and therefore was shielded from, uh, from prosecution for his own, um, I don't know, I mean, multiple murders and, and hundreds and right. thousands of crimes committed by his gang in his name because he was handing the FBI and local law enforcement informa valuable information, information. On, the, on the Italian mafia. Now, I should say what's interesting here is that Baller's in, uh, that Doran's indictments kind of portray the FBI as being the victims of these Clinton campaign deceptions. But Durham's reputation is that he is one of these guys who was willing to take on Justice Department and well, the FBI uh, in something that really mattered uh, in the 1990s. And in that respect, um, I do think that it's not gonna stick to, to sort of, as you're starting to hear from Democrats when they say, oh, he's this Bill Barr appointed special counsel and then he's somehow tainted and he's, He's just doing this to, to appease Trump. Uh, I, I don't think you can, you can credibly make that argument about Durham. There hasn't been any real leaks from his shop and he's kind of proceeded on this. So, I mean, we're, we're getting a taste of, I think what we're gonna find in a sort of final narrative report. And I, maybe that uh, probably won't uh, affect the judgments or we won't get the mea culpas in the moment, but at least it's a touchstone so that when we can look back in a few years, maybe after Trump leaves the scene and begin to maybe get back to some sort of normalcy and sanity. Eli Lake, thank you so much for joining us Thanks today. For and uh, for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.